Greetings and welcome to Deep in History. I'm Marcus Grodi, your co-host for this program, joined by Monsignor Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. How are you doing this afternoon? Good. To, how do you do? Good to see you. Very well. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Monsignor. It's great that you could join us for this. Um, I love, I, I hope you who are listening, watching, have been enjoying this discussion. It's somewhere between... It, uh, where on the one hand, you can find all the proof texts from Irenaeus in a in a book like Jurgen's uh, that only picks out the key passages. That's one way to get into this book. You could take a course on it, which would cram the teacher and the students into a certain length of time. But what we're doing is we're just taking it you know, a page at a time, looking at the important passages, discussing them. Uh, we don't know how long it'll take us. Uh, it's possible it might take us all the way to the second coming, but we'll we'll find out on that. But, you know, I'm I'd glad... There it is. Aaron asked what has said. We might actually be doing that, so... <laughs> <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to that when he discusses it. Uh, but... Uh, we're we're in chapter, or excuse me, book three. We just started it last time, and we're going to creep into it. But before we jump in, actually, into book three, we received an email because from the beginning, I'm hoping that we would receive some questions from any of you, and we received one from actually Jim Anderson, who's one of our co-workers who uh, is patiently listening through and watching the program, and he writes. Uh, Marcus and Monsignor, either I missed it or Monsignor Jeffrey and you passed over one of the funniest sections of Against Heresies where St. Irenaeus uses sarcasm in Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 11, Section 4. And that's where he's referring to is actually on page 37 of the Keeble translation. Jim says, here he shows the absurdity of the Gnostic entities by replacing their terms with vegetables. So maybe I'd like us to look at that, Monsignor, but before I get into it, can you remember why did we skip this? Because I know I've had it, I have it marked in my book, but. Yeah, well, of course, we were, we were trying to speed our way through as fast as we can. And I'm not sure why. We, there must have been other things on either side that caught our attention. But I, I agree with Jim. It's a. It's very funny. Plus, the um, Irenaeus is making fun of it, so we get, you know, it, it, it's really a neat section. Yeah. So, what I'd like to do is let me read it. It's a bit long, but let me read it through and listen if you can catch the sarcasm. And it's really section four, and I'll go ahead and read it. He begins, "Ho, ho! Alas, alas! For truly." One may well utter the tragical cry at such a coining of names and such audacity at his having so shamelessly put a name to his own figment. He's, of course, he's talking about one of the Gnostic writers. I think he's actually talking about um, Epiphanus, I think is who he's talking about. 
Yeah, that's right. I think so. Okay. And then he goes on. Irenaeus writes, For by his saying, quote, There is a certain first beginning before all, before and above comprehension, which I call onlyness. And again, quote, With this onlyness coexists a power which I also call oneness. Then Irenaeus says, He hath most distinctly avowed both the statement to be his own coining and that he did himself put names to what he had coined, such as no other had imposed before. And it is plain that of himself he ventured to give these names. And if he had not been in life, the truth would have had no name. Nothing therefore hinders but that some other also on the same plan may define names as follows. Now, I'm going to pause right there before we jump into funniness and maybe maybe explain, Monsignor, what is the issue that Irenaeus is addressing here? What's the problem with what Epiphanes has been saying? Um, well, I think, you know, it goes to the... we Epiphan, uh, or Irenaeus says we shouldn't be going beyond the scriptures. And these people are concocting all sorts of um, um, mytholo- mythologies about the origin of the world, and they just are spinning things like wild. Um, they're, they're, as he said, he's not only they're not only coining up novel ideas, but they're coining up their own unique names for them. Uh, and so this is where his sarcasm comes in. That's right, yeah. And so, what is it based on? It's, there's not, you know... Where do you go? I mean, that's going to be his argument as we go forward. Where do you go to find anything that would justify this sort of nonsense? Yeah, today we might say, show me the data. Give me some evidence. What what are Mm -hmm. you basing this on? Of course, I, you know, I've got to get, I might get in trouble here by connecting it to what's happening in our culture today and craziness. Show me the dates. What's the science behind this is kind of what, but these people, it's not just a science, a philosophy, the theology. They're just making this up as they go along because they don't want to go where the scriptures lead them. So that's their underlying goal. They don't want to be affirming the faithfulness of the Catholic Christian teaching. So they have to come up with something else. And so they're coming up with not just new ideas, but new ideas to undercut the truth that mm-hmm. is being taught. That's the double goal. So here's what Irenaeus says, and uh, he says, There is a kind of first beginning royal before and above comprehension, a power before and above substance, rolling itself ever onward. Now with this exists a power, which I call a gourd. And with this gourd is a power which also I call perfect emptiness. This gourd and perfect emptiness being one thing emitted without emitting it a fruit in all respects visible, eatable and sweet, which fruit their speech calls a cucumber. But with with this fruit is a power of the same tendency with it, which also I call a pompion. These powers, the gourd, the perfect emptiness, and the cucumber, and the pompion, emitted the rest of the multitude of Valentinus's delirious pompions. End of quote. For if any discourse 
about universals may be properly expressed in terms such as these first four, and one may assign the names at one's own pleasure. What hinders are using these names, being, of course, much more credible than the former, and in common use, and known by all? Well, Marcus, I think one thing we can conclude from this text is that to be a Bejan is to pursue a higher calling. <laughs> <laughs> I love, do you know the, um, the Pompeon um, is a pumpkin. That's, that would be probably the word that it's translating or is what we have today as a pumpkin. So we have, um, we have, we have gourds, cucumbers and pumpkins at this point. <laughs> so where does it come from? Well, I've been, I've been thinking about that uh, since the question came in and um, I did a little bit of work on it and it, it essentially goes to Jonah chapter four. <laughs> and it's the Gnostic interpretation of that moment um, where uh, you know, Jonah, let's, let me just pull it up here. Um, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Um, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm which attacked the plant so that it withered. And then, of course, God tells Jonah, why are you angry at the plant? Um, uh, you pity the plant. You didn't make it grow. Um, um, why, don't, why not pity Nineveh, the great city, which he is called to go and preach to? Um, so it's likely that this is a remnant of um, a Gnostic interpretation of, of Jonah harboring under the gourd and and it's interesting to follow some of the interpretations on this um, because so Jonah feels comfortable. He wants to stay under the shade of the gourd, but God's trying to kick him into motion so he'll go and preach to the lost souls in Nineveh. The gourd then represents, if you will, the world that we become comfortable with. Um, and the worm is sometimes translated in these early writings as um, the ego. So our, our egos are what basically destroy this, this lovely green world that, that we live in. Um, you know, I, that's likely it's, it's some spin-off of the way the Gnostics were interpreting the significance of that gourd in um, in Jonah chapter 4. Well, two things kind of jumped on me in this passage. What this to me demonstrated about Irenaeus is number one, he, he, he truly knew the Gnostic te teachings well enough, deep enough to number two, make fun of them. And those go together. He really knew them well enough that gave him a foundation to be sarcastic of them. You really need to, to know it well 
to be able to to make to use humor to reach them. A, a, a funny analogy of that reminds me of sometimes around the farm. I like to whistle when I'm out working on the farm, and sometimes I whistle like this. And people hear me say, man, you can't whistle at all. That is totally. totally." And I say, no. I have perfect pitch. But sometimes for the fun of it, I make fun of myself by whistling it wrong. But for me to do that, I have to have good pitch. You know what I'm saying? To to do it bad, yeah. you've got to be able to have the foundation of doing it good so you know what's bad. <laughs> I see that in Irenaeus. He knows what's, what's true, and he knows what they're teaching so well that he can poke fun out of it and make it look bad enough that they themselves say, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. And he's saying, it doesn't make sense. Here's what's true. <laughs> See what I'm saying? A little bit of that funniness in him. Aaron has had oh, that humor. Uh, and you know, Marcus, if you want to go, if you, anybody, anybody wants to follow out how this craziness keeps going on and on. Um, this morning, I just, I just um, did an internet search of, with, two words on, on the Google question. I wrote down Gnostic and Gord, and I was stunned at what came back. <laughs> There's a Gnostic church that um, that has a lot of information on this. And, and of course, when they get to the pumpkin, it's, it's all about the significance of Halloween in the Gnostic um, thing. It just cracked me up, so. As as um, as as Irenaeus says, ho ho, alas, alas. <laughs> well, actually, audience, you can see why it could take forever to get through this book because there's so much in it. I mean, there really is, and, and uh, history and, and behind it, and just having fun with it. So, so thanks, Jim, for your email, and the rest of you. We'd love to hear if you got any questions about anything we passed over, or if you got any comments about any of our thoughts about any of these things. So let's jump back up into book three, and we're on page 204. And last week, I'm pretty sure we ended around the beginning of chapter one, section one, the beginning of it, but we didn't quite jump all the way in. I have a feeling we ended with the phrase in about the fifth line of section one, where it says that the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. I think that's where about we ended last week, Monsignor. I think that's it. And then, okay. but then he goes on the next paragraph, um, which I, I found very fascinating because I do think it's one of the earliest witnesses to the four gospels in the church. And Irenaeus writes, for it, Never can be right to say that they preached before they had perfect knowledge. And he's talking about the apostles. 
before they had perfect knowledge. As some venture to say, boasting themselves to be correctors of the apostles. For after that, our Lord rose from the dead, and they were clad with the power of the Holy Spirit coming on them from on high, were filled with all things, and had perfect knowledge. They went out into the ends of the earth, bearing the good tidings of the blessings we have from God, and announcing to men heavenly peace. So the point, uh, we jumped right in the middle of a paragraph, but the point in what he's saying is that these Gnostics are claiming they've got a more sure, perfect knowledge than the apostles, and the apostles didn't have it uh, when Mm -hmm. they were preaching. But they do, but these Gnostics claim they have it, they have it, and, and the falsity of that. I think we'll get to the absurdity of that later. But then this is where he goes on. He says, now these, all and each of them alike, having the gospel of God, Matthew, for his part, published also a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own language, whilst Peter and Paul were at Rome preaching and laying the foundation of the church. And after their departure, Mark, Peter's disciple and interpreter, did himself also publish unto us in writing the things which were preached by Peter. And Luke, too, the attendant of Paul, set down in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned on his breast, he again put forth his gospel, which he abode while he abode in Ephesus in Asia. There we have the summary by Irenaeus of the formation of the four gospels. And indeed, and we'll get, as we go further into book uh, three, there, he's going to talk about why only four, why there must be only four. Uh, but what I see here, though, is also the traditional way that um, the churches ordered the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and ordering them chronologically as well. Now, whether that holds up with modern biblical scholarship is, I guess, another question. Um, most people don't say today that Matthew is the earliest, but, but it seems the context of it here um, it comes first, and Mark Mark's gospel doesn't appear until after Peter and and Paul were martyred. So that's just the opposite, basically, of what modern critical biblical yeah. scholarship says. You yeah. know, fascinating. You know, when I took my first course in Christianity when I was in engineering school, in college. And I had an awakening of faith, and so I wanted to take some religion classes my senior year. And so I took a, a, a course entitled The Problem of the Historical Jesus, which had the book of the same name as the textbook. And yeah. so all of a sudden, the very first introduction of me to having a rebirth of faith, I am looking at all the historical critical stuff, everything. I read them all, Boltman and the whole nine yards. And I'm ever since then, and so that's... 50 years ago or so, more than that, uh, 50 years ago, I'm guessing, 45. Um, I've been myself personally aware of all of the skepticism on the scriptures. And it's amazing to me, it reminds me of the same stuff we're encountering in this book, is that people looking for alternative ways. Yeah. They, they don't they don't want to hold on to the tradition. 
that was handed down from the beginning concerning scriptures. They've got to come up with their own way. Or as we read earlier, remember, some of these Gnostics had to be better than their teacher. They had to have something novel. Well, I'm sorry, I, I've come to a different understanding. And I, this, what I've concluded based on even this text from Irenaeus is that just as we traditionally have understood, as he says here, Early on, very early on, maybe not long after the the Jewish Christians were cast out of Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen, you know, I think Matthew could have written down his thoughts because all of a sudden the Jewish Christians are are in the diaspora, yeah. and so the the apostolic teaching needs to be put down, and and all the Christians were Jewish. And so Matthew writes a Jewish, in uh -huh. Hebrew, gospel. That's what Irenaeus says. And that works for the community for a long time until something happens. And that is the church becomes Gentile. And with the church becoming Gentile, now these new Gentile readers can't read Hebrew. Uh -huh. And so Peter tells Mark, write one in Greek. So Mark writes one in Greek. And this is fine until later Luke gets an invitation from somebody. Can you tell me what this is all about? Theophilus. Theophilus, the excellent. And so Theophilus. here we have, after you said, after the martyrdom of Paul and Peter, Luke is challenged to put all this together. And this is what he says in the beginning of Luke and, and Acts. So he collects it all, but I'm assuming Luke, the doctor, doesn't speak Hebrew. So he's got this Hebrew gospel called Matthew, and he's got this one by Mark. So he pays somebody who can translate. Will you translate this Hebrew into Greek? So we get our Greek translation of Matthew now, which we don't have the Hebrew. So we have now we have a new translation of, and I'm guessing the translator had Mark. So when he's translating the Hebrew into Greek, he's also got Mark to look at. So there's similarities. So then Luke's going to do his Greek. He's got a new Greek version of Matthew. He's got the Greek version of Mark. Plus, we know that Luke visited Ephesus. And so he got the firsthand accounts of the birth of Jesus from the very mother of Jesus. And that's how we get the Gospel of Acts. Yeah. And, and I mentioned last week that I'm, I'm a kind of big fan of that good friend of yours, J.A.T. Robinson, because in his wonderful book, Redating the New Testament, I think he makes a very strong argument that all of these books were written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70, or else they would have mentioned it because of, it was such an important yeah, exactly. issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Exactly. John would be the only challenging one to fit into that schema. I can't remember what he did well, on, on John. I can't remember either. If you go with my schema, so you've got now you've got three Greek gospels. You've got the Greek translation of Matthew. You've got the shorter version of Mark, which produced separate. And the reason Mark and Matthew sound so much alike is because the Greek translator of the Hebrew had Mark. And so that's why the, the, some of the language yeah. is the same. They wouldn't have felt the same necessity to be as 
perfect as right. we would with scripture and those, because they're just writing copy and letters. So they're, they're, he's got so we have this Greek translation of of Matthew that's partially done with the help of Mark. We have Luke's, and so John is. I don't think John wrote down his gospel. I think John preached his gospel, and somebody else wrote it. Mm-hmm. Somebody else as a secretary put it down as John is preaching. Because John is more theological. He's showing why these signs of Cana or the signs of things met, and the, and the person wrote it down. That's why, that's why when he wrote it down, he's, when he's talking about John, he said, this is the one whom Jesus loved. You know, I mean, that, that just makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise it would be awkward. Well, it's a bit like Moses saying he's the humblest man that ever walked the face of the earth. Well, <laughs> Moses didn't write that down. You know, somebody, his secretary put that down. But, you oh, know, the, that's good. The, the reason I good. wanted to bring this up was we see early on a witness to the traditional understanding of scriptures going back to the second century. And personally, I don't, I've not seen any evidence to counter other than oh. speculative reasoning uh, by higher critics. Uh, so I'm one that holds to the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John order. I, I kind of like that. And Irenaeus does too. So, hey, what can I say? Um, but section two moves on to, he says, and all these have declared to us one God, maker of heaven and earth, announced by the law and the prophets and one Christ, the son of God. And if they assent not to them, he scorns first them who partake of the Lord. Next, he scorns also Christ the Lord himself, and he scorns to the Father and is self-condemned, thwarting and combating his own salvation as all heretics do. So I almost see in this, being be careful with so flippantly challenging the tradition that's been handed down to us. Because if you do, you're scorning those that were with Christ, you're scorning Christ himself. You're scorning the Father who gives us all this stuff. And the Holy Spirit who is superintending this truth. <laughs> the importance of, of, of holding on to the tradition and the scriptures yeah. together. And, you know, we're going to jump over the next section a little bit, but we see on page 205 references to... Uh, uh, the scriptures, the truth, the traditions. Um, we, we see particularly, okay, they don't handle the scriptures, so they got to come with another way around it. And so they say, well, the apostles weren't fully inspired. We were. We've got the secret. And that's kind of in there. But he says, for there is not one of them, but is so entirely perverted as without shame to preach himself utterly spoiling the rule of truth. And uh, the reason I point is that that phrase, the rule of truth, is is really key. And, and just going up a few sentences, I underlined the words um, about five sentences down from the top. For they say, or say they, it was not delivered in writing, but in speech, um, for which cause Paul said, we speak wisdom among the perfect, not, however, the wisdom of this world. And this wisdom, each one of them affirms to coincide with his own fiction, forsooth, inventing of himself. Um, well, that that really is the, 
um, the modus operandi of the Gnostics, um, that uh, the things that they're they're handing on is in this oral tradition province. Um, yeah. It's not written down, and um, and then you know as as well as we go on now, what they're basically saying is that the apostles and even Christ himself were were speaking from this this middle world. So they were only they only had a partial story. Yeah. Even Jesus Christ, they say, here. I would like to believe that when these Gnostics began, they didn't have the audacity to undercut Christ, scorn Christ, but they became so convicted in their own convictions that in the end they had the ramifications were that were undercutting Christ and, and the reason I say it that way is I think that happens to liberals and and critics of scripture in the church is that I take someone yeah. like you know I think of Boltmann you know who I don't I would want to believe that when he began it wasn't his goal to undercut all of Christianity but when he began to the point of seeing the actual resurrection of Christ as not a resurrection of Christ, but as some kind of uh, symbolic resurrection. Well, he was dealing with a lot of issues in his life and in his culture, and he tried to understand it. He's explaining it, but does, did he realize that by undercutting the very issue that sets Christianity apart from everything else, and that's the resurrection of Jesus, that his end goal was everything yeah is up for grabs yeah absolutely Can, do you think do you mind if we read a little bit of, of uh, section two please do no please do i just okay. no i've got I, it underlined just, here i just it's good it stuff go ahead please away, please you know. when on the other hand we challenge them to that tradition which is of the apostles which is guarded by the succession of presbyters in the churches they oppose tradition, saying that themselves being wiser not only than the presbyters, but even than the apostles have discovered the genuine truth. Yeah. For the apostles, they say, intermingled with the words of the Savior, the things of the law. So that's sort of like, um, you know, the Marcionites, you know. Yeah. Um, yelling about that. And not only the apostles, but the Lord also himself framed his discourses, now as from the creator, now as from the middle state, now again from the highest. Well, themselves, they know themselves, the hidden mystery without doubt, stain, or admixture. So basically, it's exactly what you said, Marcus. They're saying that sometimes Jesus got it right, Sometimes Jesus was kind of trapped in his own culture, and that's where he was speaking from. Yeah, they. It's it's incredible to. They thought themselves into a corner, or as the psalmist would say, they dug a hole and fell into it themselves. Yeah, and 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 the end result is they're undercutting Christ. They're undercutting everything when they're coming up with these new explanations, and they're out there and out there. I mean, it's funny that they use the word emanations to show the differences between God and us, 
Well, that's also a description of where they ended up in relationship to the truth. Yeah. They undercut everything. And uh, it results, therefore, that they agree neither with scriptures nor with tradition, it says, at the end of section two. The end result is that they agree neither with the scriptures nor with tradition. And that statement by Irenaeus again, is a, an early emphasis on the importance of both Scripture and tradition. And as you began that section, he says, but when the other hand, we challenge them to that tradition, which is of the apostles, which is guarded by the succession of presbyters in the churches. So that there's the description of the tradition. We just did the page before of the foundation of the Scriptures, the four Gospels, now the mm -hmm. tradition. And of course, before that, you know, in section, the last section of the introduction, he talked about how it came from the Lord, delivered to the apostles, they preached it, that became the tradition, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, and that's been passed on. I mean, that's just what he said, and that became, as he said at the end, beginning of section one, the, the pillar and ground of our faith. But here is the end, section two of book, of chapter 2, the foundation is both. This tradition of the apostles, which is guarded by the succession of the presbyters in the churches. And so we hold on to scriptures and tradition. I thought it was interesting, uh, Monsignor, that he doesn't say guarded by the episcopoi. Right, I know it's... <laughs> 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 I, I mean, it, it is, it is um, true that there is um, some vagueness in the language about the three orders of ministry. Um, like in, in St. Ignatius of Antioch, he speaks often of, of presbyters, but sometimes um, presbyters are, um, are, are applied to bishop as well. Right. And so, um, it's not it's not silky clear smooth. I, as you would like. Well, I remember being at the ordination, a diaconal ordination of, of a good friend, and um, the bishop was giving the history of the ordination, and he talked about that. The bishop of Steubenville talked about in the early days of the church that sometimes there's a cloudiness of the overlap of episcopoi bishop presbyter, elder, and deacon, servant. You know, there, there was an overlap, but he said from the very beginning, there's one clarification, though, that always distinguish episcopoi from presbyters. Only episcopoi could ordain. Yeah. Whenever the, the issue of ordination is talked about, it's episcopoi, not not presbytery. And of course, as, you know, as the church was getting going, um, we don't have a large cadre of presbyter priests about. Um, your typical parish priest would have been a bishop. Um, he would have been in charge of the... Well, it was a long you know, time, uh, maybe yeah. even until the third century or so before we had country churches. Yeah, right? They were because, all yeah. in the cities. Yeah. 
So they're That's all right. bishops. They were pretty much all bishops. They, you know, it wasn't this issue yet of having someone way out there handling as a an assistant that would be the the elder. Okay. So let's jump into um, oh. chapter th- uh, section three, if we will. Let's see how we're doing. Okay. Time. We're, we're, yeah. we're moving along. Um, I love this one too. Well, he I note Keeble notes in the side that in he says by shewing them truth, we may yet reclaim them. So he is saying that's Irenaeus's goal by showing we may right. yet bring them back. So he says, with such dearest friend is our contention, slippery as servants and endeavoring to escape every way. Every way, therefore, we must understand, we withstand them. If haply we may confound any of them by repeated blows and bring them to change on the truth side. For though it be not easy for a soul to repent when error hath laid hold of it, yet is it not altogether impossible to escape error when truth is set by its side. That's wonderful. Yeah, I wrote down here um, my notes, you know, this he's calling us to continue to keep hammering the heretics um, because, you know, maybe they will... Um, reason will have them open their eyes and they'll be able to see the truth next to it, next to what they're saying. And well, I mean, that story is, you know, I th- I'm thinking of, so often. So. I'm, I'm thinking about the, the section in St. Paul where he says that we, we are to judge one another as brothers, but we don't judge those outside the church. There's a uniqueness of, you know, uh, of judging uh-huh. a brother who's gone wrong, but we don't judge those outside the church. And it seems to me the distinction is a brother who's a heretic, who's gone bad, if you will. It's our responsibility to confront him, to bring him back, to do what we can. Those outside our goal is to tell, to proclaim the truth. Uh, and now we're awaiting grace to awaken their hearts to what's being told. So we don't stand in judgment of them. We don't know to the extent of, of their conscience or what they know. It's a, you know what I'm saying? It's a little different. We, I mean, we're not supposed to judge anybody, but you know what I'm saying? We're not, but a brother who was faithful, who was a, a part of the body, that's different. It's like in 1 John when he says, they were a part of us, but they went away from us. And the reason we don't know they're a part of us is because they went away from us. If they had been a part of us, they wouldn't have gone away. That's 1 John. So in, in this, that seems to be the reason he says this. Because they were Christians at one point. That's these, a good th- point these Gnostics yeah. were. Yeah. Marcion was. These Valentinus were a part of the body, but then went out from us. So now we have almost a, a, a special responsibility to them mm-hmm. to help bring them back. And that's kind of what he's saying here. Hope we bring them back. I, I think it also just, but I think it also says, speaks to the, um, 
the, the wonderful ministry of an apologist, um, someone who sets clearly down the truth of uh, the faith um, so that it becomes accessible to everybody. Now, Monsignor, do you want to jump into chapter three this time or you want to save it till next time? You know, let's see, we've been going for about four days this afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. We should probably save it so that we'll be fresh and alive. And let's do that. Because it's so important. This is the heart of it, right? Well, and what I think you did mention last time, uh, but I want to remind again that this, this chapter was really important to your journey, your personal journey yes. to the, to the yeah. church. Uh, I'd love to share a little bit about that. So, um, In fact, I might even twist your arm and have you post that article that you wrote. I could. Yes, I'll send it to you. Well, you have, you have the PDF. I've been trying to find the printed version of it, but... Um, well, before I we close, why don't you just give wet their lips? Tell us a little bit of what that article was all about that you sent me. It was it was an article I wrote um, in um, way back in the 1990s. Um, I was an Anglican. Um, I was an Episcopal priest in the Diocese of Fort Worth at the time. I went to speak at a conference in in Prince Edward Island. Um, called the Atlantic Theological Conference, which was the great sort of gathering of Orthodox Anglicans um, as in, in Canada and, and the Eastern U.S. And I, I took the title, Scripture and Tradition, a famous Irenaean text revisited. And it was basically what we're going to talk about in, the, in our next podcast, um, um, book three, chapter three. All right. And I just talked about how it has haunted me. It had haunted me because it was leading me in a very different direction than um, where I happened to find myself at the time. And um, and if I if I'm correct to say, not yeah. just where you were finding yourself, but many Anglicans, many Anglicans, yeah. And uh, and it was and it gets people upset because you know um, to to make a decision to leave your your you know your ecclesial home and go to Rome is going to upset people all over the place because yeah. they feel insecure as well and so it was it was an awkward moment I I can remember I can remember um, there was uh, there was a fellow from Australia there and he. He said, you know, after he heard the paper and I, he could see that I was really saying that there's this call to become a Catholic in my soul. And he said, you know, you really should come to Australia. We, we have a very special place in Sydney um, in Harbor Rock, which is where they sent the penal prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was going to be exiled. And- from Anglicanism sent to a prison camp somewhere. <laughs> well, I'm, what I'll do is uh, I'll post that letter, that article you wrote, and uh, sure. uh, have yeah. it up there so that we can look at it uh, and reference it also as we look at Chapter 3 next right. week. 
All right, Monsignor, would you close us, if you will, with prayer? Yeah, I will. And I'd be, I'm going to use um, the prayer for St. Irenaeus from uh, the Liturgy of the Hours today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, you called St. Irenaeus to uphold your truth and bring peace to your church. By his prayers, renew us in faith and love, that we may always be intent on fostering unity and peace. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank, thank, thank all of you for joining us on this program. I hope this has been interesting to you, and we encourage you to read ahead if you can. And uh, we'll look forward to jumping in together to Book 3, Chapter 3 next week, which deals with the successions of the bishops, particularly the bishops of Rome. So we'll see you next week. God bless. God bless you. Thank you.